This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Richard Seymour. You're listening to Ira and Clark on the iTest for Two. Well, yes, it is Election Day, and Ira, I know you're off to the Caribbean, I think this evening, to celebrate your, what, 40th anniversary, wedding anniversary? 40, Clark, 40. Yeah. Uh, wow. They said, and Clark, every time I tell somebody about it, I get the same three-word response, and I got to tell you, it's wearing on me a little bit. You know what the three-word response is? She's Are you happy? <laughs> She's a saint. Oh, he's a saint. There you go. There you they go. Never, they never tell her he's a saint. It never happens. Never <laughs> Cause, happens. Because we already know you're a saint. You're the sage <laughs> of Tampa. Hey, did you vote today? Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely. Oh, oh. What do you want me to vote for? You want me to vote for DeSantis? What do you want me to do? Nah, I don't want you to vote for Brady, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ian, do you vote today? I was just going to say, is, is Tom running for anything? Because if not, then no. No, I felt like we're 0 for 2 there. Well, I I did, though it was only local elections here in Connecticut. Um, Anyway, so before we get to today's guest, and yes, it's author Seth Wickersham who's going to join us. I'd like to get, guys, I'd like to get your votes on a handful of Hall of Fame related questions. Both of you, Ian and Ira, quick ones. You good for that? All right. Here we go. Okay, here we go. First one. First modern day player you'd put in Canton next. A, Tony Baselli, B, Richard Seymour, or C, Leroy Butler? My answer, D, Rondé Barber. D. Ian? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little bit biased, and perhaps it was because he was our guest last week, but I'm going B, Mr. Richard Seymour. Yeah, okay. I think you're a little bit biased with that New England background. Okay, second, Von Miller. First ballot Hall of Famer waiting to happen, yes or no? I got to go yes. Impact player. Um, one of the... Uh, all-time pass rushers in terms of uh, sacks per game. Von Miller, first ballot for me. Ian? I got to agree. Seven out of nine seasons, double-digit sacks, um, three-time All-Pro, eight-time Pro Pro Bowler. Uh, I believe those are accurate, but, yeah, I'd say so. Okay, let's whip through these. Most popular figure in Tampa, A, Tom Brady, B, Tony Dungy, C, Kevin Cash, or D, the Sage, Ira? Not even close. A, Tom Brady, but may not be after our guest spills all about Tom Brady. But right now, Tom Brady. Ian? I'm wavering between A and D, but my allegiances, <laughs> according to the jersey on my, uh, on my wall, it's got to go with A. Yeah, I think it's a clean sweep there. Um, Tom Brady plays past 45, yes or no? Not a trick question, Ira. Yes or no? No, no. He plays till 45, not past 45. Ian? 100% yes. And I might be a little bit biased. <laughs> okay. And the last one, the last one, the person most likely to present Tom Brady to the Hall of Fame. A, his father, B, his mother, C, Bob Kraft, or D, the guy with the Tom Brady jersey sitting behind him, Ian Glendon, our producer. <laughs> uh, I got to go with his father. Um and uh, I'm interested in his relationship with Robert Kraft, and uh, we will get insight into that upcoming on this show. Ian? 
I would love to be the option, but I'm going to throw a curveball out there. What if it's Bill Belichick? I don't think it's going to be Bill Belichick, but we will now check with our guests for that answer. Um, and in fact, the answer today's, uh, to that last uh, question today could be the guest that we're going to uh, introduce right now, and that's ESPN Seth Wickersham, whom Ira and I have known for years and who wrote the best-selling book, It's Better to Be Feared, about the Patriots run with Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and Robert Kraft. And Seth today joins us from his home, Connecticut. And, and Seth, thanks not only for being here and making time for us, but really for pulling back the covers on a story that really was never dissected so completely as what I just read in the past week. Oh man, thank you guys. I've got all kinds of opinions on all those questions on the Hall of Fame in case you guys just want to <laughs> skip the book and just talk about that. I'd be more than more than happy to. That's for a later podcast, okay? <laughs> we want to get to the book. Um, first of all, I, I got to be honest with you, that book is so meticulously researched. My first and obvious questions are, how long did it take you to put together and, and approximately how many persons did you consult? And the answer is kind of interesting because in a weird way, I, I, I've been working on that book almost as long as I've known you. <laughs> you know, I was hired at, at ESPN magazine um, shortly after I graduated from college in 2000. And in November of 2001, um, one of my very first assignments at the magazine was to go to Foxborough, Massachusetts to interview another, you know, guy who graduated college in 2000, Tom Brady, who at the time just looked like he was filling in admirably for Drew Bledsoe and would probably go back to the bench. And, um, you know, I'll never forget that meeting. And he was wearing a gray sweatsuit and his backpack was full of beer because he had lost a Michigan, Michigan state bet. And we sat down at the old stadium. You guys remember that it was like a yeah. high school field. Yeah. And, um, you know, he said some interesting things that, you know, especially got interesting when you look back at them, knowing what we know now about him. At one point he said, you know, football's always come really easy to me. And at the time I'm like, you know, a year out of college, I'm like, who says something so ridiculous, whatever. And now you look back on it and you're like, yep, he was right. <laughs> and, um, you know, so when I look at moments like that and I look at, you know, covering the Patriots a lot over the years, being at Tom Brady's house and his Super Bowl parties and, you know, having a lot of late night calls with Belichick where he really, you know, delved into a lot of interesting aspects of, of his work and, um, you know, how what they built was able to get built. I felt like that when the publisher came to me um, in early 2020, I felt like I was sitting on like a mound of material and, you know, investigative pieces that I've done the Patriots that they didn't like so much. I felt like I was just sitting on a lot of material that was vibrant and fresh for a project like this. And then in the past year, I mean, I interviewed over 100 people exclusively for the book in the past year. Um, but, you know, like you guys know, Ira and Clark, I mean, it's like anyone who's covered the NFL the past 20 years, you're kind of writing about the Patriots all the time, even when you're not. I mean, every time I felt like I was writing about Peyton Manning, I was really writing about the Patriots because that was the only thing in his way and the only measuring stick that he was going to be judged against. And so kind of an interesting process, I guess, a little atypical for a lot of projects like this. Well, you mentioned that some of the investigative pieces that you've done in the past, the Patriots didn't like so much. What's been their response, particularly Kraft and Belichick and Brady's response to this book? There hasn't been one. I mean, Kraft or Belichick kind of said something odd at a press conference, but, yeah. you know, it was 
you know, I, I felt good about the material that, um, you know, I was writing about and the fairness and the accuracy of it. And there hasn't been a response. Seth, uh, congratulations on this book. I know it's doing very well and, and deservedly so. Seth, I'm a simple man here in Tampa, Florida. I'm a simple man. And, you know, I'm asked a lot of times, what do you think uh, finally broke Brady in, in New England and, and made him uh, move on as a free agent? Seth, I, I, I boil it down to one simple thing, and, and you tell me whether I'm wrong. Ultimately, I think he was waiting to hear one positive thing from Bill Belichick when that season ended. And, Seth, he never did. He never did. And I don't think it would have taken much from Belichick at that point in terms of we want you, we need you, for Brady to have remained in Foxborough. Where am I wrong? Um, I, I, I think that it's a little bit more than that. But I think that you know, there's, no, there's no question that the system there broke, you know, got on him after 20 some years. And, you know, you had Alex Guerrero who came out and he said, you know, Bill didn't evolve to account for what Brady had become and still treated him like a, someone in his early twenties. And, you know, I think that that's true. And I also think it's a little unfair to Belichick. I don't think there's any question that Brady was treated differently than the other 52 Patriots in new England. But, you know, in August of 2019, they were trying to negotiate a contract and really since you know, 2017, things had been strained in the building. Um, and, you know, there were various things had come up. The role of Alex Guerrero, Jimmy Garoppolo, the way that Brady was treated. But the one through line was that the Patriots just refused to commit to Brady until he was age 45. And, and that's what he wanted. He had made a personal goal of it. It had been a business goal. And, you know, he wanted to play football. And he felt like that, you know, he they had just won their sixth Super Bowl. He felt like that, you know, are you going to show this faith in me or not? The Patriots just weren't comfortable doing it. And it was more than Belichick. It was Kraft also. He backed him. And so but Brady was getting so frustrated in, in 2019, in August of 2019, he considered leaving training camp in protest, um, but he didn't. He ends up signing that one-year deal and um, that allowed him to be a free agent at the end of the year. And I think, you know, he said publicly that he knew that his time in New England was probably done then. And, um, you know, the Patriots opened the door for him to walk through and he walked through it. Seth, the 2019 Pats, they won 12 games. I know it ended badly, but they won 12 games. I'm of the opinion that would have been a seven and nine team without Tom Brady that season. So Seth, why didn't Kraft, you know, who, who's generally uh, on top of things, why didn't Kraft realize that Brady was holding up that whole franchise by himself kind of and overrule Belichick and, and step into the breach and, and say, we got to have this guy back. Yeah. I mean, the, the two people who better than anybody on this earth should have known better than to underestimate Tom Brady or, or Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick. And yet they did just that. And, you know, that team was interesting because the defense, at least the secondary is maybe the best that Belichick had ever coached for a while. Offensively, when they had Antonio Brown, barely, it looked like they were clicking, but then, it just they weren't able to really come up big as an offense against the best teams. And finally, just everything seemed to peter out when they played the Titans in that playoff game. They weren't moving the ball well. The receivers were struggling to get open. Brady just didn't look like he had much faith in in you know what he was seeing out there. And 
but there still was that moment. And it was towards the end of that game. The Patriots finally got a stop and they pumped the ball back and Brady comes onto the field and the crowd, which would have been kind of asleep, <laughs> wakes up. And it just looked like it was one of those moments that, you know, we had all seen so much. We knew how the game ends. Brady leads him down the field for the game winning score. They hit a pass on first down and on second down, he throws outside to Julian Edelman, who was running a little out route and Edelman dropped the ball and it hit him right in the hands and he dropped the ball. And it just felt like the air went out of the place, the entire run, everything that they had done. It just felt over. And, you know, after that game, usually Tom Brady is, is, you know, inconsolable after a playoff loss, his, his misery is so profound. It's almost atmospheric. And he was very, he just seemed kind of relieved. Like he kind of knew that it was over and was philosophical at times. And, you you know, I know that this is a roundabout way of answering it, but I think that, um, you know, the Patriots never really moved up their position that they were interested in having him play there, but not guaranteeing until age 45. And qu- quickly, uh, Seth, from what you know about Kraft and your exhaustive research, um, and Clark and I talk about this a lot, uh, is he a surefire Hall of Famer as an owner, in your opinion, Seth? Man, what what makes a Hall of Fame owner, <laughs> aside from George Hallis? You know, I don't know. Um, you know, that's a weird, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know what makes a modern Hall of Fame owner, but if. You got like, you know, DeBartolo and Pat Bolin and Jerry Jones in there. If those guys are deemed Hall of Fame owners, then I think that Kraft has to be because number one, you know, yes, he helped with the labor deals and he helped with these broadcast deals that made rich men richer. But, you know, he pulled off what's probably the greatest trade in NFL history when he traded for Belichick. And even though it came with headaches at times, he managed to keep this band together about as long as you could. And I think that... I'm not a Hall of Fame voter, but like to me, I think that I don't know when he'll get in. But if if the other owners are in, the other recent owners, it seems like that Robert Kraft is deserving. We're speaking with ESPN Seth Wickersham, who's the author of the best-selling "It's Better to Be Feared" book about the New England Patriots. And Seth, in answer to that question that Ira posed. I'm on the contributor committee, and that's a good question that you pose. What makes a Hall of Fame owner? And Ira, we're still trying to figure that one out. But <laughs> in answer to your question, I think Robert Kraft will be, and probably very shortly. Anyway, I mean, it, it's, it seems like that it's like, you know, what makes a Hall of Fame owner is the same thing that makes a Hall of Fame coach. You need a Hall of Fame quarterback. <laughs> that's right. That, that's exactly right. And that's what's mentioned in that room sometimes. Like, oh, they won a lot of games. Well, is that on the quarterback or the coach? Well, how's the owner get credit for that? And, and probably yeah, give, me, give me Joe Montana and Steve Young back to back and I'll be in the Hall of Fame as an owner. There you go. And, <laughs> and, and uh, ultimately, I think what it what it comes down to is the impact on the league. Did he make a difference in the mm-hmm. league? And, and with Robert Kraft, as you talked about um, his involvement, especially with, I would say, going back to 2011 lockout, but even much before that. Um, and also keeping the team in New England. You know, when he had a ch- they had a chance to leave and a very good chance to leave. But that's for another conversation. Anyway, I, I'm I'm really interested in your relationship with Brady, because you have access to him that to me, few people outside of that family do. And I think it's extraordinary. The stories you tell about him, the detail is extraordinary and it's, it's must reading. I, I, as a Brady fan, I know Ian's a Brady fan as well. And so is Ira, but 
Um, I've always marveled at the guy um, and never quite understood him. I understood him from afar, but not the way you do. And sort of wondering how you clicked with him. You know, from that first meeting, you're the same age. You were a high school quarterback. He was a college quarterback. What clicked there <laughs> that kept that going? And how do you get access that really no one in the media, to me, really has? Maybe outside of Jim Gray. You know, it was just that. It wasn't that. You know, I didn't meet with him expecting, you know, what, you know, knowing what he would become. It was just that we were kind of the same age. And I think that there was a handful of people that in the in the press that he was friendly with. I'm not saying friends, but friendly with. And I think that, you know, I was in that group. And, you know, so the and the, the things that I was most interested in him is obviously like, you know, being the same age and, you know, being a high school quarterback who obviously wasn't very good, but you know, he was the one guy out of the high school class of 1995 and the one guy, you know, who would be in the Hall of Fame one day. And so mm -hmm. witnessing what he went through was very interesting to me, just being of the same age. And, you know, one of the things I write about in the book a lot is is fame and, and how he handled it. Right. You know, he was someone who could be a whiner at times. And we often think about Tom Brady as this fully formed person and everybody who didn't see his greatness is kind of an idiot. But in fact, like there was many steps where the real Tom Brady wasn't there yet because he had to go through certain experiences. You know, one of them was the night at Michigan where he considered transferring and his counselor starts, you know, he says, you know, I want to get to go to Cal. I can't get up on the depth chart here. I, you know, I'm not going to get on the field. And his, his counselor at the time, a man named Greg Harden starts laughing at him. And says, you want to leave? No one's going to give a bleep if you leave. Go ahead. You haven't done bleep here anyway. Who cares? And it really kind of reignited Brady's internal competitiveness. And then fast forward a couple of years, you know, 2003, Brady is, you know, struggling with the fame that he has attained in New England. And he um, is again on the phone with Greg Harden and, and kind of complaining to him. And Greg Harden starts laughing at him again. And he says, you know, are you telling me you want to be the best of what you do, but you want to, you don't want to deal with these ancillary things, you know, right now you're the hot cookie. You can call up a kid and change the kid's life in five minutes. Go do that because you're not going to be the hot cookie forever. As it turns out, Brady's the hottest cookie that ever existed. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, you saw what he did with that fan in Tampa, you know, changing that kid's life just the other week. I mean, he, um, you know, the way that he's become who he became and, you know, the way that his, TB12 method became a part of his life and the, you know, his celebrity is such that it's almost, you can't use the word celebrity with him anymore. He's kind of a global force and it, it seems to be kind of what, maybe not what he wanted all along, but he definitely thought could be possible all along. And the way that he sort of like redefines what's possible, I think is really, really interesting. Well, as you mentioned in the book, and I think anyone, even from afar, could, could see this, is that insecurity seems to really drive him, um, always mm -hmm. has. And, and yet I look at him now, and, and he's got a family. He's got seven rings. As you mentioned, he's a global force. Uh, and he's considered the greatest quarterback of all time. So at what point does insecurity not play a factor anymore? I mean, how much insecurity can there be left after all that? It's one of the most interesting things is what drives people. And even though there's like fights and swear words in the book, you know, the book is about what 
you know, the DNA of this greatness and how yeah. it came to be and what the costs of it were. And there's a reason why I didn't write the book about the Super Bowls. Like I definitely write about the Super Bowls, but they weren't these momentous moments in the book exactly, because I think that with Brady and Belichick, they're almost byproducts of a larger compulsion that clearly doesn't go out. Like last year, the, 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 the Bucks win the Super Bowl. Brady's family comes onto the field and the very first thing Giselle Bunchen asks him is what more do you have to prove? Right. And the very, and Tom Brady's response is to dodge the question <laughs> yeah, and right. pretend that he didn't hear it because he knows that we talk about like, you know, he knows that winning the Super Bowl wasn't the thing. It's not that he doesn't live for that moment, but he was already thinking ahead about like, you know, what are these invisible ways to everybody else, but that are obvious to me that I can improve on? And when we talk about, you know, you guys were mentioning earlier, does he play past 45? I honestly wonder that. And it's not going to be because he feels satisfied. It's going to be because the toll on his family is so much that he feels like the selfishness and the, you know, it, it, that's the word for it. You have to be selfish to be that competitive and that motivated that, you know, it, it eventually becomes too much. And, you know, that's the reason why he walks away. It's really interesting because Brady and Belichick could have exited like John Elway or Ray Lewis many times. <laughs> and instead, these guys keep blowing past off ramps and, mo and moving the goalposts to mix metaphors. But it's like every time they say, you know, this is what I need to accomplish, you realize that there's more out there. And that's really what I kind of get at in the book is like where that compulsion comes from. And, you know, what it's like to live that way. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because he did an interview last week, and I'm not sure who it was with, but where he mentioned his family and saying something about we're yeah. coming, to it, coming to an end now and talked about Giselle, how she put yeah. her career on hold. And I thought, I'm not sure he's going past this year, and I'm pretty sure he's not going past next year. Did you have the same re reaction, response? Did you feel the same when you saw those comments? Well, and it's stuff that I report on in the book is just, you know, the toll that it takes on the family. And it's like yeah. his ambition is so outsized that he married the best in the world at what she did. And yet he's proven to be more his ambition is as eclipsed hers. <laughs> and in fact, you know, right. she's taken up she's put her career. She retired. But I mean, right. she's put a lot of the things that she wants to do in this world on hold to help support his career. It's really interesting when you look at, um, you know, again, just sort of like where this comes from, why it's so insatiable and, you know, what it's like to live in that environment all the time. I mean, again, I just go back to that game where she says, what more do you have to prove? And it turns out everything. <laughs> That's the answer, you know? I mean, it's like, what's it, what is it like to live that way? Seth, in the aftermath of Brady's departure, the Patriots have a lousy season. Brady's holding up the Vince Lombardi trophy. He's throwing it across during the boat parade, Seth. So yeah. my question to you is this. Do you have any sense... Not that you and Belichick are on speaking terms at the moment, Seth. But any sense that Bill Belichick and or Kraft have been humbled in any way by what has happened since Brady left Foxborough? How could they not be? How could they not? I mean, it's not like Belichick's going to lose his job or something. But again, Kraft 
backed Belichick's opinion of, of Brady. And it was an organizational decision to move on from Brady, but still, can you imagine what it's like to be Robert Kraft a month ago and watch Tom Brady on your field as the quarterback of the defending champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers and just say, how in the world did this happen? And, you know, I thought that Belichick a year ago was really interesting in the sense that he was very blunt about a couple things um, in ways that, you know, for someone who lives in a no excuses, emotionless environment, was really interesting. Uh, you know, he said in the offseason after Brady left, he said, you know, everything, every decision we made in the past 20 years what was was with what was best for Tom Brady in mind. I mean, that was a striking thing to say, you know, after this guy leaves. And then during the season, once it was obvious that it wasn't that the Patriots weren't going to be, you know, Super Bowl contenders, he says, you know, we sold out. We you know, won three Super Bowls, made it to another, made it to an AFC championship game, and we needed sort of a reset. I thought that was a really interesting way, again, for someone who just, you know, he runs a vi- an environment that's predicated on no excuses. Nobody cares, right? Don't tell me about the pain. Show me the baby, as Bill Parcells used to say. And yet he was, he was kind of talking about the pain there. Seth, you've noticed uh, Brady been here about uh, 19 months, 20 months. And Seth, you follow what's going on down here from uh, from his uh, humor, from his press conferences, from different things he does. Fair to say, Seth, that um, he's less encumbered. He, he, he's less guarded uh, now that he's a buccaneer under a different coach, a uh, different administration. Is this a different Tom Brady off the field, too, Seth? Different in aspects. I don't think he's much different behind the podium because – he still, you know, adheres to the sort of mantras that he had spent his entire professional life, you know, saying behind there. But I do think that, remember, I mean, it's like 2017, he's, he's just won his fifth Super Bowl, and they really start pushing the TB12 business. And I mean, it led to all kinds of problems in New England. During the season, he was pitching it. And, you know, Belichick famously curtailed Alex Guerrero's access. And, you know, then you look at his situation in Tampa, And, you know, they just don't sweat that stuff. You know, they sort of trust him to just, you know, you can pitch all these products and do all these things and do these podcasts. And we just kind of trust that you will be, you know, ready to go on game day. And I think that he did need something else. Um, I reported the book, you know, when Jason Light and and Bruce Arians were, were trying to seal the deal with Brady around free agency. Bruce Arian said to him, I always give my quarterbacks leniency with what we do. And plus you're Tom Brady. (laughs) Like that was an acknowledgement, like, you know, dude, plus you're the best ever to do this. Whereas like in new England, it wasn't that they didn't, you know, Bill Belichick didn't consider him the greatest ever, but he wanted more input. He wanted to be a little bit more than just the Patriots quarterback. And, you know, he told Joe Montana, you know, they ask my opinion, I give it. And then they go do their own thing. And here in, in Tampa, he's got, he's the quarterback of the team. He's the de facto offensive coordinator. And, you know, he's a pseudo personnel executive. Alex Guerrero has a office in the building and got a Super Bowl ring. I mean, those two things were definitely not going to happen in New England. And so I think that once New England opened the door for him to walk through, I think a lot of these other factors that he wanted for the remainder of his career, you know, be really crystallized. And clearly he found a place in Tampa where, he can be all of these things and be the quarterback of the defending champions. 
Seth, I thought it was brilliant marketing that when your book came out, and I'm talking about It's Better to Be Feared, came out, it was the week of the Tampa Bay-New England game up here in New England. And um, that was a momentous event. The Red Sox were still going strong, I think, then. But um, that was what everyone was talking about. And nationally, locally, whatever. Um, I'm wondering, from your vantage point, how meaningful that victory and that game was to Tom Brady. He didn't say much about it before. He didn't say a whole lot about it afterwards. But you know him, as I said, as well as anyone outside the family. How important do you think that was? Was that one of those things he had to prove? I mean, I think that it had to have been incredibly gratifying, number one, because, you know, both teams needed a win really bad. I yeah. mean, the, the Bucks had just been, you know, clocked out in L.A., and both teams needed a win. And I think number two is that, you know, the Patriots came in not looking that intimidating, but they played Brady well. And we've always wanted, right? the Patriots don't open up their practices to the media. We have always wanted to know what is it really like watching Brady and Belichick go toe to toe. And that game showed that Belichick also has his fastball also. I mean, they moved, it was a classic Belichick game plan where they let him move the ball a little bit, but they really tightened up in the red zone. Brady threw a lot of incomplete passes. I think there were one in four, one, one of four red zone trips that game. But then you just saw, you know, as competitive as both those people are, you saw the resourcefulness of Tom Brady. I mean, in a weird way, the, the Bucks won that game because of his feet. <laughs> you know, he ran for a first yeah, down on that right. critical drive, and then he, he, he kind of bought himself a little bit more time to make a key throw on another third down. And, you know, it took everything they had to win that game. And I think that, like, you know, again, I think that, it, you know, it, was, it must have been gratifying for Brady on a ton of levels. But, man, just as a as a football watcher and fan, it was really something to watch. I, I really enjoyed just that game, even though like, I don't understand a tenth, a tenth of the schematics that went into that game. I just appreciated watching those two people who kind of define their entire self-identity by their performance on the football field, how they went at each other. It was yeah. really cool. I thought. Yeah, no, I agree with you hundred percent. And afterwards when he was interviewed, I thought there was a sense of relief from him, not, maybe necessarily the game was over, but that the week was over and now we can move on. But he, to me, and, and I think to others had demonstrated something because in the, in the face of uh, one of the greatest defensive minds, he still overcame that with a not so illustrious performance, but the leadership is what comes through again and again. I want to also get to one other thing, which I, I, Ira and I talk about all the time. And I know Ian's interested and that's deflategate. And, and, mm -hmm. and you call it in your book, the most farcical scandal in sports <laughs> history. I tend to agree with you. I not only tend to agree with you. I <laughs> definitely agree with you. I'm very outspoken mm -hmm. on that. And I think Ira feels the same way. And I've spoken to people uh, within the league office who feel, quite frankly, the same way. They didn't understand why we just can't get past this thing, but they couldn't. Why do you think that went as long as it did? I realized the two personalities and you talk about mm -hmm. I mean Brady you know when he destroyed the phone and all of a sudden Goodell going you're not going to do that to me and I'm going to push back and it just seemed like there were two like uh, immovable objects that just weren't going to budge and it became an eyesore for the league you're taking down the face of the league for what a general knowledge of an air being out of a football it just seems so insane and I think what you said the most farcical scandal in sports history is absolutely dead on perfect <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I could give a really long answer to that. But I mean, you know, it, a lot of it went back to Spygate and Don Van Natt and I wrote a, a big story sort of in 2015 about that and about, you know, the investigation that Roger Goodell had into Spygate and destroying the evidence. Jeff Pash stomping the Spygate tapes into pieces in a Gillette Stadium conference room. You know, the league, everybody around the league was like, why was the evidence destroyed? It did nobody any favors, including the Patriots. And it made it look like Goodell was complicit in a cover up. Correct. And, you, you know, it was a makeup call. And, I, you know, an owner told me that that Deflategate was a makeup call. All that said, they were deflating the footballs. I mean, when, you know, the two ball boys were quietly let go from the team. Nobody's heard from them since. Belichick reorganized the entire equipment department to make sure that there was compliance. The texts speak for themselves. All that said, it was ridiculous. Like other quarterbacks brag about the tampering of footballs, Aaron Rodgers, you know, these other guys. And, you know, because it was, there was all of these other things going on. The past Patriots breaking of rules, the perception that they were breaking the rules even more and that they had gotten off light for it. That's all that contributed to it. And then you had two immensely stubborn people, Tom Brady and Roger Goodell, craft in the middle of it all, trying to like appease everybody. And, you know, I quote a moment in the book where there are some people in the league office who were like, we got to end this thing. I mean, this is destroying the league. And they talked to an executive who had Roger's ear and they were like, can you get him to back off this thing? And Rod and the the executive goes back to him and he says, yeah, you don't know Roger very well because he could not get over the fact that Brady broke, you know, just had his phone destroyed. And because of that, they were like, you know, we're going to go, we're going to take this thing to the limit. And Brady took it about as far to the limit as you could. Yeah, one other thing I'll mention here, and then Ira can get in, but uh, I mentioned to my uh, brother about this. We were talking about one time, and his wife, my sister-in-law, doesn't follow sports at all. She didn't really care about him. And so she was sort of interested in listening. And she said, what's this come down to? And I said, in 2006, they, they allowed these quarterbacks to sign off on this. Roethlisberger, Manning, Brady, they wanted balls where they could feel them better, lighter if they wanted, a little bit heavier if they wanted. Just allowed them to do that. She goes... <laughs> It seems to me that the problem is not with the quarterbacks; it's with the league that signed off on that. <laughs> Why isn't that the issue? That yeah, she's right. You know, it really cuts to the core. Yeah, it's kind of just a weird. I mean, it's like God. It just—it's just one of those those scandals that doesn't age well. That's you right. Know? It just that's doesn't right. age well. <laughs> you look at everything that's going on now with Dan Snyder and the Washington Football Team. It's just one of those scandals that doesn't age well. Seth, I got one more. Seth, um, thanks for, so much for doing this. You're, you're a heck of a guest, heck of a reporter. Seth, you, you don't rest on your laurels with this fabulous book <laughs> because you go at the NFL owners meet, I guess, in New York, Seth, and, and here comes Wickersham <laughs> with almost a moment-by-moment breakdown of what the heck was going on behind closed doors. Yeah. You, your sources are impeccable. Seth, and I haven't heard anybody say you got anything wrong in that respect. Mm-hmm. So, Seth, here's my question. Final question. I was on radio last week with uh, my dog, Chris Russo, as I do every week. And I called Stan Kroenke, based on your reporting, a weasel. I called him a weasel. And, and I'm no Stan Kroenke fan from way back. Um, and, and, of course, Jerry Jones, as, as a trustee enabler, Seth, what what is going on with NFL owners and Stan Kroenke, and, and how many uh, how many supporters does Stan Kroenke have at the moment? He does not have many. I mean, it was really revealing, and maybe I should have hit the doubt a little bit harder. 
in the stories that only Jerry Jones stood up for Stan Kroenke. I mean, to, to rewind for your listeners, at the NFL owners meetings last week, they they kicked all the team executives and the league, most of the league executives out, and they have what's called a privilege session, which is owners only and only top league executives. And in that, they brought up three topics, the emails and John Gruden and Bruce Allen, the Washington football team and Dan Snyder, and the ongoing lawsuit between the city of St. Louis and the stadium authority against the NFL and Stan Kroenke saying that they, you know, essentially committed, you know, violated the league, violated its own relocation guidelines and owes the city of St. Louis a lot of restitution. Now, when the, there was the Derby for LA in January of 2016 on the morning that the vote happened. And I wrote about this in detail with Don Van Atta then the league presented all the parties, the Rams, the Raiders and the Chargers with an indemnification agreement, which basically said, if you get through and you guys get sued, you have to cover everybody's legal expenses. So sure enough, Kroenke wins. A year later, the city sues and he has been footing the bills, tens of millions of dollars for all of these legal bills that everybody has had to go through. And Usually these lawsuits go away, but the city of St. Louis is not going away. And the league keeps losing a bunch of its motions. And Kroenke is losing is, you know, remember his stadium was supposed to be whatever it was, 2.7 billion. It's six, It costs $6 billion. This has been an enormously expensive move. I know there's a lot of people who don't care and won't feel any empathy for him, but it just has. And he basically is at the point where like, this lawsuit isn't going away. I did what the league told me to do. Maybe the league didn't provide good enough shielding for me. And, you know, the, Jerry Jones kind of intimated the reason why the St. Louis lawsuit has been able to proceed is because there was an official from the Carson Project, which was the competing one with Stan Kroenke, who wrote an email in writing that basically outlined how to sue Stan Kroenke. And that's been a blueprint for the city of St. Louis. And so he's basically like, look, not all of this is my fault. And I want to make the case that the indemnification agreement is not unlimited. And man, did that not go over well. I mean, you know, if there's one thing you guys all know, these owners, if there's one thing they don't like, it's having to pay for something that they don't think they should have to pay for. <laughs> and the idea that they might be on the hook for, you know, some of these legal fees because of this mess that the league finds itself on did not go over well. Robert Kraft of the Patriots said it was unfair. John Mara of the Giants said it was unfair. You know, that did not go over well. And right now there are some issues, you know, between the ownership and the dynamics right now. And again, it was revealing that only Jerry Jones stood up for Stan Kroenke in that meeting. Ira, uh, I don't like to pay for a lot of things that I don't think I should pay for either. So I think that's the only thing that you and I have in common with the owners. You know I mean, remember, remember, all of these owners pocketed a huge amount of money from their vote because any team that relocates has to pay, you know, more than half a billion dollars in relocation fees, which gets divided up among teams. So the, the owners are getting paid handsomely just for their vote. And the idea that like the city of St. Louis keeps winning and that this is scheduled to go to trial on January 10th and that every time Kroenke has tried to settle, it has been rebuffed. You know, it's started. It is a massive league wide headache right now. Seth, I'm going to ask you one last question about Tom Brady. We'll get you back in January to talk about St. Louis and the Rams. Um, but one more question about Brady. Um, you know, if and when he retires, 45, 50, 60, whatever it is, what's the next goal line for him? What does he do next? I understand he's going to look after the family, but what's going to drive him next? 
I mean, I think that he's he said publicly that he's plans to seek counseling, you know, and, you know, he's a big believer in therapy. There's nothing wrong with that, obviously. But I think that he knows that there's this massive hole in his life that he will be unable to fill. One of the things I wrote about in the book was when 60 Minutes interviewed him. And I don't even think this made the piece back in like 2015, I'm sorry, 2005, 2006, around that time. Um, I don't think this made the 60 Minutes piece, but Steve Croft asked Brady, who at that time is age 27 or so, you know, what do you fear most? And he says, the end of my playing career. Mm. I mean, right then. And one of my best friends in the world is another writer at ESPN named Wright Thompson. And he wrote this unbelievable story about Michael Jordan in 2013 that was around Michael Jordan's 50th birthday. And it was really a portrait of a sad person who, who has everything you could want in life, all the money and fame and but he can't do what he loves to do most. And he says at one point in that story, I would give any, everything back to be able to go and play the game of basketball, man. I looked at that. When I read that story and you look at where Brady is, it's like that to me is Michael Jordan knowing Tom Brady's future better than even Tom Brady knows it. In an hour, you know what I fear most? The end of this interview. I I've seldom enjoyed an interview as much as this. This, this is great Seth. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us and best of luck with the future. But this book is must reading for anyone, any football fan. I'm not talking about a Patriots fan, but any football fan. I absolutely enjoyed it and thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Seth, thanks so much. Always good to speak with you guys and, and see your faces even virtually. And um, thank you guys very, very much. You guys. That was ESPN Seth Wickersham, author of It's Better to Be Feared in Ira. I love hearing Tom Brady's stories and he's got such insight in the end. I'm sure you'd agree with that. I just, whether you you know like it or not, he's got great insight into one of the most intriguing persons just because he's so guarded with his emotions, but he got past that and gives you a real glimpse into what drives Tom Brady. I mean, honestly, what drove Bill Belichick and what ultimately drove them apart. Absolutely. And, and Clark, you know, so many, there's so many NFL reporters. I mean, a lot more than the NBA and baseball yeah. and, and hockey put the, put them together. Yeah. Clark, who, who's got better sources than Seth Wickersham? I mean, he proved you. it again. He you. proved it again in the NFL meetings. He just proved it again. <laughs> what's and they're cheering you. They're cheering you, Ira. They love you. They do. <laughs> Wait a minute. Don't tell me you were somewhere. Were you yeah, somewhere? That's right. It was, it's our Iowa's there, our sometimes visible and audible, audible segment on, well, the past when we were there. And you know what? I was there in March 2000 in Santa Clara, California. And I mentioned that because guess who was there at the time? That would be Tom Brady, the 49ers, the team I was covering at the time bring in local kids. And he was from uh, San Mateo. So he's considered a local kid, local kids, either from the university or grew up in the area for workouts. And sure enough, they gave him about a 45 minute workout. He left. They didn't draft him. Instead, they drafted two quarterbacks, Gio Carmazzi in the third round and Tim Rattay in the seventh. Yeah, I think New England got the better of that deal. But the interesting thing to me was in the aftermath of that, I talked to the late Greg Knapp, who was the quarterback's coach who worked him out. And Steve Mariucci, who was then the head coach who worked him out, and they said, there's really nothing spectacular about the workout. And as Mariucci said, if we only knew about the intangibles, what drove this guy, we might have acted differently. Well, yeah, it's 2020 afterwards, but you know what? Big mistake, Ira. If only, uh, if only that x-ray would show intangibles. Clark. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Ira, I know you're getting on a plane tonight. So anyway, final thoughts for the week. Well, I'll, I'll say this. Um, the Chiefs are in trouble, Clark. Yeah. I watched that game last night. Ooh. They won over a mediocre Giants team. There's trouble in Kansas City. That's right. And, Clark, I hate to say this, 
but Andy Reid, his mind is going in a million directions, and, and I don't blame him. He's got health issues, his son. There's a lot on his plate, Clark. Uh, they're not going to make it, Clark. They're just not going to make it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I'd say they're not going to make it, but I agree with you. They, they're not the same team, and they sure look like they're in their own way. Uh, I'll mention something here, and that's in New England, not uh, football. It's a different sport, actually. Uh, I want to mention the passing of broadcaster Jerry Remy uh, for the Red Sox. Um, he died last weekend at the age of 68. I think he was eight days removed from his 69th birthday. I don't know how much you know about him, Ira, but Ian certainly does. Um, he was a good second baseman. He was a great analyst, and that's a big loss, not only for the Red Sox in New England, but for Major League Baseball. Anyway, that's going to do it. Remember, if you want to hear more of our podcast, just go to fullpresscoverage.com and pull down the podcast bar and click on the eye test for two. On this day, that's uh, I think that's one we'd elect, right, Ian? I agree. I agree. No bias. No bias. There you go. Anyway, thanks for listening, Ira. Safe travels. We'll see you next week.